The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Holander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we hear all the time about the waves and waves and waves of Chinese people who are going to Africa. In fact, one of the statistics that I saw the other day was that because there are now so many more direct air routes between China and Africa, there's new routes uh, between Rwanda, certainly a lot between Ethiopia, uh, South Africa, I think Kenya's launching a new one, Morocco next year will launch one. Uh, It's bringing a lot more Chinese people onto the African continent to work, to travel, to do all these different things. But we don't hear as much about what the traffic looks like going the other way. And there is a lot of traffic going the other way. And in fact, uh, a lot of those are students. We've talked about that, that Africa sends now more students to China than any other country in the world except uh, France. Uh, But what about professionals? And it's an area that is growing. Uh, Many of those students are finding jobs in China after they graduate, but also other Africans are finding jobs. But it's not always very easy. And I can tell you, Kobus, as somebody who's lived in China for a long time, uh, being a foreigner in China is a challenge. And, uh, well, actually, I mean, given what we've just seen in South Africa over the past few weeks, being a foreigner anywhere is a challenge. Uh, but particularly in China, where it can be very difficult because of, you know, just rules and heaviness. And you know, Kobus, you've been to China many times, and it's not always easy to get around. Yeah, no, I mean, China can be challenging, I think, even for Chinese people. Um, And it can be challenging to be non-East Asian in an East Asian environment, you know, because because frequently people, not only are there very strong rules and ways of doing things, but people frequently don't have have grown so, they grow up in that system, so it's difficult for them to actually explain it from an outside perspective. Um, But it's then also just complicated to be a foreigner anywhere, and particularly, I think, to be an African foreigner in other places can be very complicated. So it's it's fun to speak with people who are currently kind of living and working in China um, and to, to say how that shifted their their perspective of China and also of Africa. Every, every year or so we do these kinds of shows where we want to introduce you to different people who are doing amazing things. So we're taking a break from our normal politics, economics, diplomacy, debt, all of those those more heavy issues to really focus on the personal relationship that people have with China and what it's like for uh, Africans, African-Americans, black people to work in China. And uh, so we always look for people who have these these great, compelling stories. And boy, I found the perfect person. Uh, I have been trying to get the, this, this person on our show for almost six months now, I think. It goes back uh, to earlier this year. And I'm so glad that Dean Diabate is with us. Dean uh, has spent 11 years in China. Now, he has a little bit of a complicated upbringing. Malian mother, Ghanaian father, born in Paris, now lives in Hangzhou, Uh, He's also a graduate of the Alibaba Leadership Academy. He lives in Hangzhou. And for those of you who are not familiar with Hangzhou, it is 
probably the second most important city now besides Beijing, because that is where the headquarters of Alibaba. It's almost the Bentonville, Arkansas uh, for, of China. That's where Walmart is headquartered in the United States. Uh, Dean, thank you so much for joining us and for finally making time on the show, because I know it's been difficult coordinating schedules, but we're so glad to finally have you on the program. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for having me on the show. Well, let's get a, let's start with you know a very open kind of question about your China story and how you made it to China and what drew you there. I mean, 11 years ago, being in China for a long time is, again, we talked about not easy, but at the same time, very, very rewarding, but it can be a challenge. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you made it from, you know, through Africa to, to France and all the way to China. I'm more than happy to tell uh, to tell my story, which is actually uh, pretty common, um, because back uh, in Europe, in Western Europe, um, a lot of times when we uh, go to university, we have those kind of uh, internships um, to do, and usually with those internship, uh, internships in universities are done abroad. So my university told me that I needed to go abroad, whether it was in the U.S. or uh, anywhere in the world, but in France, and I, um, I basically chose uh, China or Shanghai as my uh, internship location, uh, based on a friend's recommendation who just came back from Shanghai and uh, saw that this city was actually perfectly a very good fit for me and my personality. And he said, "You should really go to Shanghai for your six months internship uh, because I'm sure you'll love it." And um, and that's how I ended up in Shanghai in the first place. What year was that? It was in February 2008. Yeah, so that's a long time ago. Yeah, that's right around the uh, the time of the Olympics too, when there was a lot of excitement in China. Exactly. So I arrived here in February 2008. Did an internship for six months uh, in private banking, um, right on the one of the main streets of Shanghai, and um, and my internship was supposed to last for six months, but eventually. Um, I just decided that, you know, I, uh, I wanted to prolong my stay in Shanghai um, to discover a little bit more. So uh, upon completion of my internship, I called my school and I said, <clears throat> look, guys, I do not want to come back uh, this year. I want to take a gap year and um, work a little bit more in Shanghai to understand better this uh, amazing economy, this amazing city and this amazing culture that is the Chinese culture. So instead of going back that year, I, uh, I actually started the business with two of my friends who are both from Sweden. And um, we, we started the first Scandinavian-focused private bank in Shanghai or in China. And, um, and I was one of the main founders of the company. And um, uh, later in the year of 2009, I eventually went back to finish my degree uh, in Paris and um, and at the time of my uh, degree completion, I actually uh, had the news that my partners made it to sell the company to the main comp- competitor. Um, so I was very happy. I was um, 23 years old at the time of uh, of this sale, and um, and I said, you know, this is a this is a, a signal that Shanghai or China is calling me back uh, to say, you know, I have to go back home or I have to go back and. And kind of like found out, find out a little bit more about what China has to give me in terms of uh, learning for, about myself, learning about people, learning about business, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I went back to China actually in March 2010. 
Um, so, you know, as, as someone who's lived in China for a long time, and not only for, you know, over a long length of time, but also over an era where China itself has changed quite a lot, um, and there's been real kind of political revolutions within China over the last 10 years or so, how, how, how has China changed from your perspective from the inside of China? That's a very good question, because um, I think that um, one thing that I will re always remember about China is that we used to call China the factory of the world, right? Um, but a couple of years ago, back in, I think it was after the Olympics and after the, uh, the Expo, uh, the government made a mandate to turn the economy around and make it a consumption economy. So a lot of the, um, I think, policies and regulations that have been put in place um, have helped a lot of the, I would say, you know, digital transformations that we see today or even changes in, in, in consumption or in behavior of Chinese people. So that to me is really a major, major change that I've seen in China is that I've, I've witnessed the economy changing from becoming a, uh, an economy of consumption, so of consumers. And um, companies like Alibaba, but also Tencent or other companies like JD, have benefited from from this um, from this change simply because people now start spending more money at their home or in China in general. Um, they aspire to having a more westernized kind of lifestyle. Um, they definitely develop um, a certain personality that is proper to the Chinese consumer rather than being a copy to a copy of the mm -hmm. uh, Western way of living. Um, so I've seen and I've witnessed all of this change in uh, small and um, in big and medium cities uh, such as, you know, Hangzhou, Shanghai, Beijing, etc. But I can definitely see that this change is actually impacting uh, how the whole world is, is running today. today. Um, so we used to say that, you know, China was the factory of the world uh, producing for the for major economies like the U.S. or European economies, etc. But today now, the actual major superpowers that, that used to be superpowers are now looking at China as a vehicle to uh, maintain their economies and uh, their businesses. So I think China has made this major shift, this major change, change that has benefited the country, the economy, and benefited its people. Yeah, so over the 10 years that you've been there, really, it has gone from no WeChat pay, no Alipay, no mobile payments, to basically you don't use cash anymore uh, anywhere you go. I mean, you work for a company that has pioneered that. Uh, I mean, it's hard to explain to people who haven't experienced Taobao. Taobao is the kind of Amazon, eBay, you name it, all wrapped up into one, how amazingly convenient it is. And this is, I'm not shilling for Alibaba, I'm telling you as a consumer of Taobao, it is remarkable. You want something, you scan the barcode, you take a picture of it, bam, it shows up at your house in a few hours later, sometimes, you know, very, very quick. I want a, a Dairy Queen, you know, milkshake, bam, there it is. It is just remarkable. But So I guess... The speed with which China has evolved technologically um, is is there's nothing like it anywhere in the world, and they are proud of it in one sense. But it's come at a real tremendous price in terms of the Chinese management approach. Your former boss, Mr. Jack Ma, 
uh, was very, very outspoken on how hard he pushed people at Alibaba, pushing this thing called 996, nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night, six days a week. Oftentimes that meant uh, seven days a week. And, and the Chinese work extraordinarily hard. So when we look at the transformation that's happened in China, we see where Africa is today is at the early stages of that. We're starting to see the first green shoots of some of the things that are going on in China happening uh, in Africa. E-commerce is starting to come up. There's a more connected mobile economy and things like that. As somebody who really looks at the tech trends and and also spends quite a bit of time in Africa as well, what are some of the things that you're seeing in China that you think can be brought over to Africa and are applicable to Africa? And what are you thinking that maybe should be, you know, Africans should avoid when they see in the China market, when they're looking at the, what's happened in China? Yeah, so um, I think you've raised a couple of very, very good points, um, which is that China basically has, um, has really constructed its, its economy based on consumption for the past few years. Um, and all of that consumption with 1.4 billion people Technology had to be at the core of uh, of making such miracle happen, and technology like you know big data, cloud computing, uh, but also everything related to um, to mobile payments, um, uh, transportation, logistics, mm-hmm. everything related to supply chain um, has been at the core of of driving that change in, in the country. So if we look at at Africa today, so um, I. I think there is something that most of the um, uh, what makes Africa different to China is is a unification factor. So today, Africa is 54 countries, but China is just one entire country with total unif- It's total unified and it's uh, governed by a central government. Um, Africa is governed by many different governments, um, or each country is managed by its own government, and um, what makes the biggest difference between the two uh, the two continents is um, basically number one the fact that Africa is totally um, not unified geographically. China is, and any goals that China needs to have happened in Africa or African people need to have happen in the continent is some company or some uh, of the world or the African leaders need to unify the country digitally. So when we look at all these um, major differences, I'd like to say that the challenge ahead for um, for us as Africans is to find a way to unify our country via digital technologies. So China being at the forefront of, of digital technologies and and, and Everything that is related to cloud, to uh, to big data, to logistics, to payments, etc. Um, of course, it's very inspirational from for any entrepreneurs or any major companies in Africa that are that is looking at unifying uh, the continent digitally. And so there is a lot of of learning that China had to undergo over the past, I would say, 20 years in order to build its own digital economy. And I think that Africa, of course, all the, the countries in Africa can learn a lot from, uh, from, from, from the country or from any companies that have um, made it in China, such as Alibaba or Tencent or any other major, major companies. However, um, I would say that it is very important for any uh, African countries to remain sovereign of you know, their future. Um, and that includes making sure that you know, um, 
all the new solutions re related to technology or related to uh, making, you know, to making the shopper experience in Africa actually African uh, has to be developed locally. So it's important that, you know, as Africans, we don't only rely on China to help us, uh, you know, develop our way forward or make our way forward. But it's also very important for, um, you know, the local uh, entrepreneurs and, and local governments to really look at China as a source of uh, knowledge um, for us. You know, we can learn from, from China and its, its, its success. But it's also very important that we develop our own ways, just like China has done it over the past 30 to 40 years. Um, China has welcomed a lot of foreign direct investment from the West, from the U.S., and they have learned a lot from uh, from the West and from uh, from America. Um, but in general, now the country is becoming completely sovereign and completely in charge of its own uh, economic growth. And I think that every single African country should actually look into that as well and not just rely on on Chinese businesses to come to Africa uh, and, you know, give investments or, uh, or just simply help on every single aspect of businesses. Um, that's what I believe it's extremely important. So, you know, as you mentioned, the, the shift from the, the manufacturing to the consumption economy, you know, really changed Chinese life in a, in, in a big way. Um, and in the process, China became a very, very sought-after um, consumer market, um, also for a lot of African producers. You know, I think now getting access to the Chinese market is kind of the holy grail, you know, for lots of agricultural producers, For you know, uh, in, in places like Kenya, Rwanda, South Africa. Um, and a lot of people are trying to sell products like tea or coffee, um, to China, um, how would you advise um, African uh, producers to go about that? Like, how should they gain the trust and the interest of Chinese consumers? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very important question because um, it actually lays the ground for the future of exports um, of African products into the Chinese market. So today we, uh, we see that there are many different ways uh, for any businesses, whether it's African businesses or European or, Af or American or Latin American, you name it. All kinds of businesses can enter China. But it's very, very important that, um, that the Western businesses, including African businesses, really understand what are the different channels that are available for them to enter China to succeed in China and then maybe expand into different parts of Asia in the future. So one of them is obviously to really know and understand what are the online and offline channels that are available to them uh, when it comes to doing business in China. So you have channels like uh, Eric mentioned earlier, like Taobao, for example, or another channel like Tmall or simply Jindong or Xiao uh, Hongshu, which is a little red book, um, a mobile application that uh, that's used by many Chinese uh, consumers. Uh, but you have all these all these channels online, and of course you have also all the channels offline, um, such as the supermarket Hema or uh, any shopping malls, as well as uh, different uh, retail stores that really are quite strong and well connected to the online world. So I think. One of the core advice that I give to um, to all the clients that I have in Europe, uh, in Israel, and also in Africa is that, number one, you have to really clearly understand how does the China 
the China digital economy functions. That's number one. Once you have understood that, then you need to understand how how do the channels in in China actually function? What makes you successful in a channel like uh, Tmall? What makes you successful in a channel like Jingdong or any other channels by Tencent or Kaolao or any other companies? Um, so that's, that comprehension is very, very important to have. And then once you have that, obviously it is also important to kind of find a local partner, a local partner that will help your business to basically build its own operations in the country. Um, you know, it's different to operate a business online than to operate a business offline. And you have many, many different um, uh, companies in China that are uh, be, that have become specialized into helping foreign brands to operate their online uh, stores or even to operate their offline stores. Some of them are advertising or marketing agencies, or others are distributors. And a lot of uh, small and medium-sized brands from Africa, for example, um, have already found distributors in China. So they work directly with distributors, selling to them on a B2B basis, and the uh, distributors then takes care of the development and expansion of the products within the market. Um, so that is one way to look at it, which is the easiest way to look at it by working with the distributor. The second way, which is a little bit com more complicated, is that actually um, you enter as a brand into the Chinese market. So that means you know you need to have some operations uh, in the in the country. You need to understand different channels and you need to be in control so you you need to really have a clear understanding and control of your operations within the market within the different channels by maybe having a team locally that you employ which will you know be um, reporting to your business uh, overseas or in china if you've registered your trademark and your operations here and then moving forward you know once your business has grown to a certain size then you might want to look at expanding into Southeast Asia or maybe India uh, through the different partners or platforms that exist in those uh, in those uh, regions. Um, so in essence, I think that for local African businesses in coffee or in tea, etc., um, I've helped them already enter China through the uh, electronic world platform. Um, and I'm more than happy to share if you want a little bit more uh, later on. Yeah, I mean, you make it sound easy, and I'm not suggesting that you're trying to trivialize it, but for a lot of people who are not in China and have no idea about any of the platforms that you talked about, whether it's JD, Jingdong, or Taobao, Tmall, uh, you know, Xiaohongshu, uh, Little Red Book, any of those, uh, these are platforms that on the outside we have no idea about. And I have to tell you, I worked at WPP on the Ford account for two years. This is a company that has $160 billion in annual revenue. Uh, they had maybe 60, 70 people on their social media team, and they struggled in China communicating. Not to say anything negative about Ford, but it just shows you the difficulty of this market. So I can imagine a small, independent, uh, or just a small to medium-sized African enterprise trying to enter into the African market. Uh, to the Chinese market, oh man, I, I don't envy that. That is a hard, difficult nut to crack, there's no doubt. Um, let's talk about EWTP a little bit. You mentioned it, you, you got some nice coverage in the press about what you're doing with Rwandan coffee. This has been in the news a little bit uh, about what Alibaba is doing in Rwanda. Tell us a little bit about what your involvement is and what you can tell us about it. 
Yeah, more than happy to share, actually, because um, uh, this is something that really makes me proud um, as an individual, as a black person in, in, in China, um, who's really helping um, African businesses to, um, to succeed in China through one of the most powerful uh, uh, companies that exist in the country, uh, Alibaba Group. Um, I was given this project back in June 2017, sorry, 2018. And um, my team leader came to me and said, Dean, there is a, a project that is um, extremely important to Alibaba Group, but also important for Jack Ma himself, because it is about um, uh, sort of looking at how we can nurture the relationship with uh, Rwanda, because Jack met with Jack Ma met with President Paul Kagame in uh, Davos back in uh, January 2018, and they really, really had a great, uh, I would say, um, uh, a great communication around you know what the future of Africa should be, how the relationships between uh, Africa and China should should look like in the future, etc. So much that um, that. Jack and, and and President Paul Kagame came into a an agreement that uh, EWTP in Africa should actually start with Rwanda, and so that start with um, with EWTP in Rwanda was uh, segmented into three parts. So the whole project was given to several teams in Alibaba Group. Um, the first part was the trade segment. Uh, the trade segment, I was in charge of it. Uh, representing the interest of Tmall. Tmall is the largest um, B2C e-commerce platform in China. Um, so I was representing the interests of Tmall and um, was put in charge to identify which brands, which products, which industry I was going to focus on uh, for import uh, into China from Rwanda. Um, and I decided to choose coffee. Because coffee or specialty coffee is a very well exported commodity from Rwanda, and since the country um, has made quite some um, remarkable, I would say, uh, notices around the world for its specialty coffee, um, I said, okay, this is a great commodity for us to focus on, especially given the fact that the Chinese economy was also shifting from consuming mainly um, instant coffee to consuming more and more specialty coffee. So um, I focused on building that business model of import from um, uh, from Rwanda specialty coffee to Tmall. And uh, we chose three brands, three main brands that uh, came from Rwanda, born in Rwanda, and that are now doing business uh, in the uh, Tmall ecosystem. Uh, to sell their coffee to the Chinese consumers. The second segment of EWTP Rwanda was the tourism segment. So tourism segment through our platform called Fliggy. So Fliggy promotes tourism destinations to the Chinese consumers from overseas and from China. And um, we have built an entire business model to... Um, place a few tourism activities or few tourism spots from Rwanda into the into the Fliggy platform so that the Chinese consumers could actually go and visit uh, Rwanda on their holidays. 
And then the third segment, which is related to education, is about educating or sharing the knowledge of Alibaba to students as well as entrepreneurs and as well as uh, government um, or politicians in Rwanda. So these three segments were really what um, EWTP Rwanda were, was composed of. And uh, I was in charge of, of building the entire uh, business model for the trade segment. That's really amazing. The, um, so what were some of the challenges that, that the Rwanda Run and Coffee um, you know, um, faced in, the, in entering the Chinese market? That's another very good question because um, this was actually the first line of import that has been built from Rwanda to China. Meaning that um, if we look at the uh, transaction volumes on Taobao for Rwandan products or any African products, um, the volumes, the transaction volumes were quite low. And when we actually decided that we were going to import a lot of coffee from Rwanda, obviously the transaction volumes were going to increase tremendously because we really bought quite uh, substantial quantities of coffee uh, from Rwanda. So a few challenges comes, uh, came with that. Um, the first challenge was, um, was for us at Alibaba Group because uh, we had never really focused on building an import line from Africa. And that basically in, involved, like, that means that we had a lot of issues, for example, understanding you know, what were the regulations for import uh, with uh, the customs uh, in China, what were the actual um, uh, sort of um, rules to import samples of coffee into China, what were the different um, uh, supply chain and logistics uh, challenges that we needed to pay attention to. So we actually learned a lot through that process. Um, and then for the Rwandan brands, for the, for the three Rwandan brands, it was actually a very big challenge for them also because um, we basically work the Chinese way. And when we work the Chinese way, it means that it's like you said earlier, 996. There is literally zero rest. So sometimes I would end up calling those brands, you know, uh, very late at night uh, for them and tell them, you know, they need to provide me with these documents, with these papers, because the next morning we have a major deadline uh, that we need to meet for the government or for uh, our teams. Um, so I pushed them quite a lot uh, in order to, you know, uh, get to the level of sales that we are today. Um, so that's that was the number one challenge was to understand, you know, the general logistics or um, or the different factors that would uh, that would help us to have a very strong supply chain for the import of specialty coffee into China. The second one was related to more of the. I think the knowledge base that the uh, sellers of coffee had uh, about doing business online. Those, those coffee brands were actually major sellers of, uh, of specialty coffee bags to uh, companies like Starbucks or, or other major brands or offline uh, coffee um, uh, retailers in the West, in Europe, and as well in, as a, in the U.S., and uh, for them, they were basically selling their products, you know, on a B2B basis and not really uh, looking after how to do marketing, how to do operations to uh, put their products online or even do any types of branding. And for, the, for some of them, for the first time, they really had to 
to start thinking about what's my business strategy in China? How do I leverage a platform like Alibaba and make sure that my future as a business in China is actually sustainable and doesn't just rely on just one channel, which is the Tmall channel? Um, so I think for them, it really uh, required them a complete shift in mentality from saying, you know, at the beginning was just about, I just sell my coffee bags and that's it, to really starting to think about how to build a proper business strategy for the Chinese market to make sure that the products supplied to the Chinese market were perfectly delivered, were going to be marketed properly, and that their business was going to, um, to take another turn into uh, developing into a new country, a new region, and a new continent. So that was a huge challenge for us, but also a huge challenge for them, um, which today I'm very proud to say that after a year and a few months and a couple of months into doing business with them, um, they're now very much used to doing business now with uh, one of the most demanding Chinese company, um, but they're also used to now thinking more strategically about their future in China, but also in Asia. And that's, I think, you know, it's a major feat that we have achieved. Yeah, it's a bit, it's all, it's not easy to do. And I'm not suggesting that people aren't capable of doing it, but, it, you know, again, breaking into the China market requires a lot of expertise, a lot of advice, experience, and things like that, which is relatively new for commodity exporting countries. And this has always been one of the key challenges for countries like Rwanda and Kenya and others is how do you add value to the product before it leaves the port? So that by the time it arrives in China, there's branding, there's packaging, there's processing. So more of the value of the tea, the coffee, whatever the commodity is, is captured in Rwanda rather than by uh, somebody else in China. And I guess, is there up? Do you see this as an opportunity for Rwandan or, or again, any African brand? If they start to figure out how to use brands or platforms like Taobao and some of the Alibaba or JD or any of the different platforms, uh, can they take advantage of this or are they better off kind of staying in the commodity exporting and let other people do the, the upside of it in terms of packaging, branding, and adding value to the product? Yes. Yeah, so I think. Um, uh Last time I spoke with the, the government of Rwanda, um, they really made it clear that they were actually looking into um, adding more value to their products rather than just saying that they're going to sell their products and then do nothing else after that, not looking into branding, into marketing, into packaging, etc. They're actually looking into building a proper brand strategy for their product, for their country into China. And especially now, if we look at what's happening, you know, uh, what's been happening for the past few years now between on the relationships between China and Africa, um, there is definitely a rise in the awareness of African countries or of the African continent in the minds of the Chinese consumers. Now, you know, People in China don't look at Africa as just a place where there are wars or famine or uh, have very high level of poverty. But they look sometimes at Africa as a place now for tourism. They look at Africa 
know, to go for safari in Kenya, or, you know, most of them, when they, when you refer to Africa, most of the Chinese people will South Africa or Kenya or Ethiopia because they have heard of uh, of safaris, but also of uh, the coffee from Ethiopia. And today, you know, proudly enough, um, a lot of Chinese consumers are actually really, really uh, saying that Rwanda is one country that they have heard of because of Jack Ma and Alibaba Group, the efforts that we have made to promote the country in the in the in the market. But also, uh, you know, a lot of the people now, a lot of people now in China really know that Rwanda is a producer of very high quality coffee. So this is some kind of um, a huge sh shift in the mentality of Chinese consumers that I think any African businesses today can ride or surf that wave and, um, and leverage all of this positive branding that is uh, happening in the relation with the relationships of China and Africa, but also that mentality shift that is being observed uh, with the Chinese consumers who are now seeing Africa as a place where they could go for tourism or a place um, where they can buy products from. Another example of uh, that I've encountered during uh, last year's uh, China International Import Expo uh, that took place in November in 2018. Um, is that the products such as Shia butter from Uganda is extremely popular in China. Yeah, I saw that as well at the Ghana Expo, and people were just mobbing to buy that. It blew me away. <laughs> I just couldn't. And I was like, what are they doing? I mean, it was busloads of rural Chinese women <laughs> who were lining up to buy the Shia butter. And I just, I was blown away by that. That's right. I mean, you can, you can think about it, uh, you know, for, for me who, who's been living here for a long time and for same as you, Eric, I'm sure that you have heard of the phenomena from uh, the bird's nest, you know, mm -hmm. Chinese women eating a lot of bird's nest or that product that is made of bird's nest or that we call bird's nest, which helps you know them to get a better skin or better skin tone etc now countries like uh, i believe it's malaysia or uh, other countries are running out of of that product because chinese consumers are just buying that just like crazy so you know if we if we look at a potential trend for any big big um, big export of african products to china I can tell you, Shia butter is one of them. Coffee is also another of them, uh, one of them, but also chili, uh, as well as other types of products, such as, you know, in the fashion industry, such as open shoes in uh, parts of the country where uh, it's actually quite warm. Uh, I know that the open shoes from Algeria are selling extremely well on Taobao, for example. You know? Um, so when I see all these trends, uh, or all this forensic attitude by Chinese consumers towards certain kind of products um, or African products, I just know that there is something that is that shows a very strong potential for any African brands to enter China. And now is the moment because I would say that there are not a lot of African brands who are entering the market now. So it's pretty much of a blue ocean uh, with not a lot of competition. So any African brands that wants to enter China should do it right now and start looking into understanding the market and making sure that they find the right local partners to develop in the country and then potentially expand in Southeast Asia.
Wow. Well, there you have it. If you're an African exporter, this is the time to get in to China. And you have heard it directly from a guy who works at Alibaba. Obviously, very excited about the future and what's going on uh, in the China market. And that gives us a lot of hope for the future of China-Africa trade and maybe trying to balance out the trade a little bit more in Africa's favor, which will be a long road ahead for a lot of African countries. Dean Diabate is at Alibaba. He's a graduate of the Alibaba Leadership Academy. He spent 11 years in China uh, and has had just an amazing experience there. We just wanted to kind of bring you Dean's experience and as part of what we do where we talk to lots of young people about uh, their different experiences in China. Some good, some bad, some complicated. Dean's obviously uh, had, a, had a wonderful journey so far. And so we're looking forward, Dean, to hearing what's ahead and following your adventures in Rwanda with the EWTP. Congratulations on that. We hope to see more uh, EWTPs, not just in Rwanda, but in other countries as well as Alibaba starts to move uh, across the continent. Is there any way that people can connect with you? Are you on any social media that people can follow if, uh, if they want to reach out? Yeah, of course. Uh, people can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the easiest way. Um, it's Dean Diabate. It's quite straightforward. So Dean, D-E-A-N, Diabate, D-I-A-B-A-T-E. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and I'll be more than happy to answer any queries that, uh, that you have. And we will, of course, put uh, Dean's uh, LinkedIn in the show notes as well. And Dean, thank you very much for staying up very, very late for us on a weeknight. We really appreciate it and we're so glad we were able to share your story with everyone. No problem. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Gobis for, for your your time and giving me the opportunity to um, to share my experience. Kobus, it's people like Dean who are going to be part of the solution in narrowing the massive trade deficit that exists between African countries and China. I mean, you can just hear it in his voice, the enthusiasm he has to sell Rwandan coffee in China, Kenyan tea to Chinese online consumers, and in all these businesses that are in China that are eager now and a lot more excited about buying products from places like Africa, including shea butter. Who would have thought? Ghanaian shea butter. But I think this is really interesting to see it on the ground level that there are tremendous opportunities for African exporters and producers not only to sell raw materials on these big e-commerce platforms like coffee and tea, but also to create extra value through packaging, through branding, through all of the, the positioning of their products more than just selling a commodity. And Chinese consumers seem to be more sophisticated, particularly in tier one cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Tianjin, Guangzhou. Those cities people are actually looking out for uh, you know, avocados and quinoa and tea and coffee from different exotic places that for them is very, very cool. So so that was very interesting. And I guess I also took away from the fact that, you know, a guy like Dean has been able to thrive and do so well, despite the fact that China is not always easy for foreigners to to succeed. And yet him being different than everybody else with his background in, uh, in France and his African parents and his international upbringing, uh, he has been so successful despite, you know, seemingly being different and an outsider, but it doesn't seem like it's been an obstacle for him. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense to me in the sense that, you know, racial otherness is, you know, I think in China doesn't come you know, with with a set of discourses. You know, not to not to sound too super academic, but I mean, you know, discourses about about racial hierarchies, those were Western 
you know, creations, you know, the, 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 the creations of, of the idea of like a race science was that came out of Europe, um, and, and was, was kind of developed under, you know, in, into kind of sets of laws in the US and, and, you know, that South Africa drew from in making apartheid. So, you know, so, so you can see like how in, in China to a certain extent that, that didn't really exist, you know, so, so it, you know, racial otherness might be racial otherness in all places, but the, the kind of sets of ideas that come with racial otherness is different in China. Yeah, or for any migrants, I think, in China. You know, kind of the idea of, like, starting a bank before you're 25, you know, I mean, that's, that's not, not for everyone. But, but at the same time, I think even, even people who start from different, different places and come from different backgrounds, the, the power of kind of rein, reinventing yourself when you go to a different country is, is, is powerful itself. And it, it sounds like China offers particular opportunities in that direction. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another show. But just a quick housekeeping note before we go today. Keep an eye out on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We have a lot of new things are coming. We're, in fact, relaunching the website with a whole bunch of cool new stuff. We're going to have a news feed, uh, new daily analysis updates with exclusive reports and writing. And we're going to create something called the China Africa Experts Network, where we're bringing together artists, activists, uh, academics, journalists, and everybody's going to come together. It's going to be kind of like this mini LinkedIn, this really cool directory. We're going to have links for you to fill out a profile if you'd like to be a part of it. But what it does is it allows you to connect with everybody directly. And we're so excited about that. More information is coming. In the meantime, also go to our website right now and you can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter that comes out every Friday with a wrap of the week's top stories. This will, of course, turn into a daily email newsletter for subscribers, which we're going to launch sometime in the next uh, week or so around October 1st. Uh, Very, very excited to get you on board for all of this. And uh, if you love China, Africa news and information as much as we do, we think you're really going to love some of these new services that we're rolling out. So we'll keep you updated on that. In the meantime, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.